Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. This month, we thought we would lean into the 2020 mood and choose a very dark and creepy murder mystery. It's actually our first mystery. Our book this month is Tana French's The Searcher. It's a stranger in a strange land story about a retired Chicago police officer named Cal who moves to a ramshackle cabin in the middle of nowhere in rural Ireland. Before long, a local kid asks him for help solving the mystery around a brother who disappeared. I'm going to have a super spoilery conversation about this book with a separate panel later this month. So just know this conversation with Tana is going to be as spoiler-free as possible. Tana is the award-winning author of eight mystery novels, including The Searcher, which came out in October. Tana, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Oh, I am such a huge fan of all of your books. Like whenever anyone hasn't read you and I get to hand one to them, it's such an exciting experience for me. So I'm just so honored and delighted to be able to chat with you today. Oh, thank you so much. So uh, I have a number of questions. I'm going to try to keep them as spoiler free as possible, as I said in the intro. Um I, I've seen, as you've talked about The Searcher since it came out, that this book is is sort of a, an homage to traditional Westerns. And the title is even a reference to an Alan LeMay book called The Searchers, which became a John Wayne movie. I wonder, I mean, I'm not super familiar with, with the Western genre. What was it about it that that you were drawn to when you decided to write this book? There were a lot of things I liked about Westerns. I'd been reading a lot of them and I'd never read any before. And some of the things started catching me. The thing that really did it, the the thing that The Searcher came out of was the settings Mm. because they have a lot of resonances with the West of Ireland. Westerns tend to have the sense of a harsh country that's going to demand physical and mental toughness from Mm. anyone who wants to make a living out of it. And, and, And that made me think of the West of Ireland. And there's also this sense of a place that is very distant, not just geographically, but also culturally from any of the centers of power. Mm. So the people living there feel like if they want any kind of cohesive society, they're going to have to make their own rules. They're going to have to enforce them themselves. And Mm. that leads to a society that can be very, very strict about its rules, but they might not necessarily be what anyone from outside would expect. So I like that. I love the West of Ireland. I love the wildness of the countryside. And I like the wildness of the Western settings as well. So I started thinking, how would those, the tropes of the Westerns transpose to the West of Ireland? What would I have to change? What would need to shift? And what could kind of stay what it, stay as it was? Well, it seems too that often the, the instigating action of a Western is that the stranger coming to town, who is yep. often an enforcer of the law too, I suppose. He's the stranger in town. Yeah, you're right. He shows up in a lot of Westerns. He kind of strolls mm-hmm. into the saloon and he's probably got secrets and he doesn't answer questions. And he is 
he's often an enforcer of the law, but whatever he is, he's going to stir things up. He's going to make changes. Like maybe mm-hmm. he's going to shoot the corrupt sheriff and set the town to rights, or he's going to, you know, shoot the hero and make everything go to pieces, or he's mm-hmm. going to get shot for interfering with the order they've established. But he's a disruptor. He's a catalyst. So yeah. he's also got a long history in Irish writing. That's the other thing about The Outsider. He's at the heart of one of the great classics of Irish theatre, the J.M. Singh play, Playboy of the Western World. So he seemed like a really good place for the two to intersect. Hmm. So you really decided to kind of double down on the idea of an outsider by making your protagonist in this book, Cal, an American. Why did you decide to do that? Was it just to make him like as outsidery as possible? <laughs> well, it's the only way he could be an outsider because he had to be somebody who had no connection to this townland at all. And Ireland is small, right? Everyone is connected to everyone in some way. And playing spot the connection, it's like the national sport, right? If you, <laughs> people quiz you about, right, who do you know from here? Who do you know from here? How, and they find out. Who are your parents? What happened then? Yeah. yeah, who are your parents? Did you ever go to school with so-and-so? Where did you? And somebody would have found out, like Noreen, the local shopkeeper and information mm-hmm, repository right. she'd have placed yeah him. who's like kind of in charge of everything yeah. absolutely <laughs> she'd have placed him inside an hour she'd have found out that you once went out with a girl whose uncle was from around here or your dad plays <laughs> poker with someone from around here and that would place him within the community he wouldn't be a proper outsider anymore i had to make him from a whole other country and even then he couldn't be from like new york or boston or there would have been a connection somewhere and she would have found it <laughs> So, yeah, you chose Chicago, which I found especially fascinating being a person who lives in Chicago. Why did you decide that Cal would be a retired Chicago police officer? Chicago was because I wanted a big city because I wanted him to be getting as far away from everything that symbolized police work for him as he possibly could. Mm -hmm. So for him to be moving to this little rural place implied to me that he was coming from a big city. But I wanted him to be originally from somewhere quite rural, somewhere that wasn't a big city, and that he had moved towards it and was now moving away from it in an, in an attempt to recapture what he thought of as his real self, you know? Mm-hmm. So Chicago mm-hmm. just seemed like a good place where you would have a police community that has a certain amount of tension and conflict that he might mm-hmm. be trying to get away from, trying to move away from. And a big urban center that would give him a motivation to go somewhere very rural. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, this book and I think all of your book, I think maybe every good mystery novel, I'm just going to say it, it kind of occupies the gray area, the moral ambiguity around, you know, maybe it's not so easy to figure out exactly what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, especially as a journalist here in Chicago, I'm pretty well acquainted with you know, just how controversial the Chicago Police Department has been over the years. And so it it just seemed like an especially fascinating choice, given that, you know. I wanted one where, yeah, where there was that tension around morality. Because going back to the Western thing, that's one thing Westerns do. They're always very deeply involved with the idea of morality. And when I started writing this, I've been thinking a lot about morality, which I think a lot of us are these days, and about the urge to make it simple. You know, you get This person liked a horrible comment on Twitter, so he must be evil. End of story. Hmm. Or on Mm -hmm. the other side, this person does terrible things to other people, but he says he's religious, so he must be a good person. End of story. Hmm. We really want it to be simple. 
But one of the things I loved about Westerns was how matter-of-factly they deal with the complexity of morality. They've got people who are trying to do the right thing in situations where that might not be an option. And they deal with the fact that people who are mostly good sometimes do bad things and vice versa. And people of every kind can find this really hard to cope with. And Westerns, they don't gloss over that. They don't try to deny it. They don't try to explain it. They just lay it out. So I wanted, if I was going to write a book that had any kind of tinges of Western, it had to be underpinned by that focus on the intractable complexity of right and wrong. And so I kind of needed to focus on the fact that while detective novels tend to be involved with right and wrong, they tend to position the idea of right to an extent with the detective in that you do see the detective as a force towards order and justice. That's true. That's true. That's true. Whereas Cal himself even is more complicated yeah. than that. Yeah, he doesn't see the detective as a force towards order and justice and right anymore. He mm-hmm. wanted to when he went into this, and he doesn't feel that he's entitled to see that this job that way anymore, which is why he's left it, because he he no longer sees it as a force for morality. And so I needed a police department, going back to the Chicago thing, I needed one where that conflict, that moral rift was pretty deep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So with a book like The Searcher... Where did you start? The sense of place is so strong. Was that kind of like the initial seed that this book grew from? Was that you wanted something to take place in in rural Western Ireland? Yeah, I love the West. I, I If I was going to write about somewhere that wasn't Dublin, it was always going to be the West of Ireland. I usually start with, yeah, a really strong sense of the place, a really strong sense of the main character, and a really basic premise, which in this case is this guy is trying to have a peaceful early retirement except this kid shows up going, you need to find my missing brother. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of what I started with. It was just that. Hmm. And how much do you plot out a book before you actually start writing? Like, (laughs) do you know, you know, where the brother is and what happened? No, I have no idea. You don't? Oh, well, that's so (laughs) delightful. So you just see what happens as you go. Yeah, I kind of find out. It's because I blame it on the fact that I used to be an actor. So I write like an actor and I need to get to know the characters for a while by writing them before I figure out. You have to play out the scenes. Yeah, before I figure out who would do what to whom and why. So I just dive in there and I, I'm i in awe and kind of envy of the authors who have it all plotted out because they know there's a book in there. They know those loose ends will turn into something. I'm just going, wee, let's hope this has an ending. <laughs> so yeah, how often do you write something? You're like, uh-oh, this is it. It got weird. <laughs> Maybe this should go. Maybe I'm going to hit the delete button a few times. Um, there's always a lot of rewriting because you you hit chapter eight and you go, oh, oh, that character would totally do this. And that means I need to rewrite the whole of chapter three. Funsies. <laughs> I hate rewriting. <laughs> but it's the only way that works. And so far, I have always somehow managed to find an end to the book. And I put it down to, like your subconscious does a lot when you're writing. So if you throw something in there, there's a decent likelihood that somewhere down the line, it'll turn out to be useful. Like Cal's neighbor, Mart, who kind of plays up the the lyrical yokel funny guy stereotype. <laughs> I just threw him in there because he seemed like fun to have. And then mm. halfway through the book, I went, whoa, this guy's actually could be useful to the plot. I could use this guy. Mm. But your subconscious is doing stuff for you, I think, along the way. It's putting in stuff that you're going to use. Oh, that's so fascinating. So as you're working on a book, who do you let read drafts? Uh, My husband. That's it. 
That's because he's yeah, that's it. He has a demon eye for structure, and structure. I think it's my weak point. It's the point I've had to work hardest on. I'm I'm at ease with character. I'm at ease with just on a sentence to sentence level of prose, but structure, man, that does not come easily to me. That's a battle. So he's the one all along who's going. You know what? That location, it's a very powerful location. You can't just use it once. If you're going to use it once, you need to use it again. Or he's going, this character's vanished out of the shot for too long. I can't see this character anymore. He's seeing it structurally. So he picks up on stuff. And he's also got a demon eye for laziness. He's the one going, you know what? I know you needed to write that in order to get into the character, but I'm not convinced your readers need to read it. (laughs) So he's great. He's really good at this stuff. That's so fascinating because I would... I don't know. I would say that structure feels just as effortless to me as a reader as as all of the rest of your work. Like, it's just a delight to encounter. But I guess that's testament to how much work you've put into it. Thank you. Me and my husband. (laughs) (laughs) What else goes into the making of a ton of French mystery novel? And will she ever return to the Dublin murder squad? You're going to find out in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So... I think in this book, maybe not as much, but especially when I think about your Dublin Murder Squad series and in this book, too, I wonder how do you make sure you're being accurate about, you know, police procedure or maybe just randomly saying like what a decomposed body might look like? Like, how do you how do you research that stuff? Oh, my, listen, my search history presumably has me on any number of really scary lists. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know about the weirdest stuff. I know about like mink habitats and decomposition, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I'm lucky. I have a, 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 I know a retired detective who has answered the wildest variety of questions for me over the years and told me the mm. wildest variety of stories. But he wasn't so much help on this one because this was about an American detective and everything right. from the procedures to the slang to the atmosphere is utterly different in America. It's an entirely different experience. So this was a lot of reading internet forums geared towards US policemen and detectives, just reading, Mm. reading and reading and reading everything that I could find to see what's the thought process? How is it different? What's the slang? But after that, I kind of had to throw a lot of it away because Cal is very deliberately not a detective and he has none of the weaponry of a detective. Literally, he doesn't have a gun, but he also doesn't have you know, he can't call up some guy and go, hey, will you go through the victim's phone records? What's the victim's, the witness's criminal record? He's got none of that. He's a detective with all the accoutrements of a detective stripped away. So I kind of had to leave a bit of that behind. But I will tell you one thing about research. It is incredibly hard to find out what happens if you put something in a bog for six months. It is much <laughs> harder than you would think. <laughs> Does that mean you ended up having to put something in a bog yourself, Tana? 
was tempted, but I did not have a handy dog. <laughs> no, but I did find archaeologists who had deliberately put piglets in bogs for several months to oh see what would goodness. happen. Yeah. There's a, it's a job. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> not a job that oh had ever occurred gosh. to me, but a job. <laughs> so obviously you are a lovely human. You have a hilarious sense of humor. When you work on a book like The Searcher or any of your other, you know, I mean, these are these are dark. These are grim. These can be intensely eerie and sad. Do you have any any rituals for how to kind of get out of that headspace when you're done writing in a given day? No, I mean, or are you just that creepy all the time? <laughs> I'm totally uncreepy, unenigmatic, unintense. <laughs> but I again, I'm coming from acting. So you have to get good at leaving it behind the minute you close the door behind you because otherwise you're going to go home and like be Hamlet all week and <laughs> you will end up with a divorce and kids who hate you so <laughs> I'm fairly I, I was in practice already at leaving stuff behind I mean some of them are very depressing like Broken Harbor is a depressing book mm -hmm. and that one was less fun but I think it also helps that I've got a busy life I've got two little kids I've got real life is banging on my door demanding that I help fix its Lego. So it's quite easy to, to leave stuff behind at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So speaking of Broken Harbor, that's one of six books in your Dublin Murder Squad series, which you're very well known and loved for. It was recently adapted into at least one series on stars. But The Searcher, this is the second book you've written now that isn't part of that universe. I got the sense in reading interviews that you've done about The Searcher that that maybe there's like a certain creative freedom that you can have with books that don't take place in that world. Is that is that a fair assumption? Oh, yeah, definitely. Once you've got any kind of series going, even a kind of, you know, odd chain link to one like the Murder Squad books, you've set mm -hmm. up parameters like you've established who's the state pathologist, what the building looks like, what the hierarchy of the Murder Squad is. And you're tied to that then whether mm -hmm. or not it comes in useful for the specific book you've got going on. Now, I found it a lot of fun because it means you've got these, these basic foundations in place and then you get to play with them and see what this world looks like from different perspectives, which to me is one of the great joys of all the arts is seeing the world from an entirely different point of view, getting a glimpse through someone else's eyes. Mm -hmm. But it does mean you're a little bit tied down. And when I wrote The Witch Elm, which was the first real standalone, it was a bit scary because I was going, hang on a second, I, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's like writing in the woods all over again. I'm starting from scratch. But at the mm -hmm. same time, it was quite liberating because I could invent anything I want. Everybody could be a whole different person in this. It, it was, yeah, very liberating. And I also, I like the fact of not sticking to a detective's point of view. I mean, Cal is sort of a detective, but not in the mm -hmm. same way as the Dublin Murder Squad ones, mm -hmm. because one of the reasons I moved away from the murder squad was I was going, I mean, I've written from the point of view of a detective six times now. And there mm. are all these other points of view within a murder investigation. There's you know, witnesses and suspects and perpetrators and victims. And all of their points of view are totally different. And they deserve a voice too. Like from the detective's point of view, a murder investigation is a way of putting order back on chaos. But from the point of view of everyone else, it's not that at all. It's this thing that barrels into your life and turns it upside down. And I like the freedom of being able to look at it from all those different angles. Wow. So, I mean, I have to ask, does that mean you're, are you done with the Dublin Murder Squad? I'm, I'd love to get back to it. 
But I think it's kind of good to take time out of anything like that because mm-hmm. it's always a temptation for a writer, especially in genre where, where the the arc is very much set out for you, like mystery has A kills B and C finds out who done it. It's always mm-hmm. a temptation to end up writing in some ways the same book over and over to go, okay, I know this works, so I'll do it again. And sure. I don't want to fall into that trap. So I think spinning off in different directions for a while is kind of good to clear the head. And then if I come back to the Dublin Murder Squad, then I'll be coming back to it fresh and knowing that I, I don't have that risk of writing the same book over and over. And then it's that it's where you want to be, I yeah. imagine, too. Yeah. So obviously, as you can probably tell from the course of this conversation, I there are a great many things I appreciate about your work. One of them from a like purely practical point of view is that you put out a book like pretty much once a year, maybe every other year. It's two years, two years. Don't give my editors ideas. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, even every two years, that is rigorous. Well, I love doing it. That kind of helps. I feel really lucky that I get to do this all day and I don't have to have a day job. So it's a lot of fun being able to do that. And again, it goes back to the acting thing when you're an actor you're kind of reliant on someone else to decide whether or not you're allowed to work. And it was really Hmm. liberating starting writing and going, I can work whenever I want. No one can stop me. I have a pen and notebook and I'm good to go. So it kind of makes it easier to get stuck into writing. Now, now is a little bit different. I've got to say, I don't know if I'm going to manage the book on schedule this time, because with what's going on in the world, I think everyone's head is fried. And, mm-hmm. and talking about some conscious, nobody's got a subconscious. We've all got like a smoking crater that smells of burnt toast where, <laughs> where the subconscious should be. But normally I, I love doing it. It's a really good way to spend the day. Yeah, absolutely. Before I let you go, I wonder, sometimes we like to ask our guests to give our listeners homework. <laughs> and it's something we haven't done in a while, but I think it's delightful. And I'm sure people would just be delighted to know maybe what's on your bookshelf these days. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be something to read, but I I wonder if there's something that's really resonating with you lately, whether it's something to watch or listen to or think about or do that that you might recommend. Okay, my book of the last few months has got to be um, A Gentleman in Moscow, Amartol's A Gentleman in Moscow. You know, I haven't read it, but it's on my list. You know, you need to, because it's just after the revolution in Russia, right? And this count has been placed in house arrest where he spends decades in the Hotel Metropole in Moscow. So he's essentially in his own form of lockdown. But it's all about how, it, it, that's what it feels like. I, I reread it during during the first lockdown and went, oh my God. You're not the first person to mention it to, it, it to me since the pandemic, because it seems so resonant with just that idea of like being stuck in a box. Yeah, but people are finding ways to be happy and make connections and have a real effect on one another in one another's lives even in the middle of these this strange and sad and restrictive situations so i think this is a great book for lockdown. <laughs> all right I'll, I'll check it out tana french thank you so much this has just been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me on it really has been Tana 
Hannah French. What a lovely human. It's funny. I I wonder if the people who write the grimmest stories are actually the most pleasant. I, I have two data points between Tana French and Gillian Flynn, but I mean, those are two pretty good data points. Her new book is called The Searcher. It's our December book club read, which means you're invited to read along with us. If you do, make sure to send us your thoughts, even if you don't finish the book in time. Like, just tell us how far you got and what you think. I'd love to know, especially if you were able to solve the mystery before Cal. Uh, Maybe you've already started planning a post-pandemic trip to Western Ireland. Record yourself on your phone and then email the file over to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com and do it before December 18th. And then tune in on Tuesday, December 22nd to hear our extremely spoilerful panel discussion. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull, and our intern is Val Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. See you for more book club in two weeks. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.